Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Pulitzer Prize-winning photojournalist Lindsay Adario on her memoir, It's What I Do, A Photographer's Life of Love and War. Lindsay Adario is an American photojournalist whose work appears regularly in the New York Times, National Geographic and Time magazine. She has covered conflicts in Afghanistan, Iraq, Lebanon, Darfur and the Congo, amongst other places, and has received numerous awards, including the MacArthur Genius Grant and the Pulitzer Prize in International Reporting. And we're going to be talking about Lindsay's book, which is It's What I Do, A Photographer's Life of Love and War. Um, Lindsay, welcome to Little Atoms, first of all. Thank you. I often ask, I guess, to read a little bit of their book, and I want to ask you to read a little bit, but normally we do it at the end, but I'm going to ask you to, uh, to read a little bit to start us off with, if you would. Of course. In the perfect light of a crystal clear morning, I stood outside a putty-colored cement hospital near Ajdabia, a small city on Libya's northern coast, more than 500 miles east of Tripoli. Several other journalists and I were looking at a car that had been hit in a morning airstrike. Its back window had been blown out, and human remains were splattered all over the back seat. There was part of a brain on the passenger seat. Shards of skull were embedded in the rear parcel shelf. Hospital employees in white medical uniforms carefully picked up the pieces and placed them in a bag. I picked up my camera to shoot what I had shot so many times before and then put it back down, stepping aside to let the other photographers have their turn. I couldn't do it that day. It was March 2011, the beginning of the Arab Spring, after Tunisia and Egypt erupted into unexpectedly euphoric and triumphant revolutions against their longtime dictators, millions of ordinary people shouting and dancing in the streets in celebration of their newfound freedom. Libyans revolted against their homegrown tyrant, Muammar al-Qaddafi. He had been in power more than 40 years, funding terrorist groups across the world while he tortured, killed, and disappeared his fellow Libyans. Qaddafi was a maniac. I hadn't covered Tunisia and Egypt because I was on assignment in Afghanistan, and it had pained me to miss such important moments in history. I wasn't going to miss Libya. This revolution, however, had quickly become a war. Qaddafi's famously thuggish foot soldiers invaded rebel cities, then his air force pounded fighters in skeletal trucks. We journalists had come without flak jackets. We hadn't expected to need our helmets. My husband, Paul, called. We tried to talk once a day while I was away, but my Libyan cell phone rarely had a signal, and it had been a few days since we had spoken. Hi, my love. How are you doing? 
He was calling from New Delhi. I'm tired, I said. I spoke with David first, my editor at the New York Times, and asked if I could start rotating out in about a week. I'll be heading back to the hotel in Benghazi this afternoon and try and stick around there till I pull out. I'm ready to come home. I tried to steady my voice. I'm exhausted and I have a bad feeling that something is going to happen. I didn't tell him that the last few mornings I had woken up reluctant to get out of bed, lingered too long over my instant coffee as my colleagues and I prepared our cameras and loaded our bags into our cars. While covering war, there are days when I had boundless courage and there were days like these in Libya when I was terrified from the moment I woke up. Two days earlier, I had given a hard drive of images to another photographer to give to my photo agency in case I didn't survive. If nothing else, at least my work could be salvaged. You should get back to Benghazi, Paul said. You always listen to your instincts. When I arrived in Benghazi two weeks earlier, it was a newly liberated city, a familiar scene to me like Kirkuk after Saddam, or Kandahar after the Taliban. Buildings had been torched, prisons emptied, a parallel government installed. The mood was happy. One day I visited some men who had gathered in town for a military training exercise. It resembled a Monty Python skit. Libyans stood at attention in strict configurations or practiced walking like soldiers or gaped at a pile of weapons in bewilderment. The rebels were just ordinary men, doctors, engineers, electricians, who had thrown on whatever green clothes or leather jackets or Converse sneakers they had in their closet and jumped in the backs of trucks loaded with Katusha rocket launchers and rocket grenades. Some men lugged rusty Kalashnikovs, others gripped hunting knives. Some had no weapons at all. When they took off down the coastal road towards Tripoli, the capital city, still ruled by Gaddafi, journalists jumped into their boxy four-door sedans and followed them to what would become the front line. We traveled alongside them and watched them load ammunition and waited. Then one morning, one of the first days on that lonely strip of highway, a helicopter gunship suddenly swooped down low over our heads and unleashed a barrage of bullets, spitting at us indiscriminately. The gaggle of fighters shot up in the air with Kalashnikovs. One boy threw a rock. Another, his eyes wild with terror, ran for a sand berm. I ducked behind the front of a tin can car and took a picture of him and knew that this would be a different kind of war. The front line moved along a barren road surrounded by sand that stretched flat to the blue horizon. Unlike in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, there were no bunkers to jump into, no buildings to hide behind, no armored Humvees in which to crouch down on the floor. In Libya, when we heard the hum of a warplane, we went through the motions. We stopped, we looked up, we cowered in anticipation of rounds of ammunitions or bombs and tried to guess where they would land. Some people lay on their backs, some people covered their heads, some people prayed, and some people just ran, just to run, even if it was to run nowhere. We were always exposed to the massive Mediterranean sky. I had been a conflict photographer for more than 10 years and had covered war in Afghanistan, Iraq, Sudan, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and Lebanon. I had never seen anything as scary as Libya. The photographer Robert Capper once said, If your pictures aren't good enough, you're not close enough. In Libya, if you weren't close enough, there was nothing to photograph. And once you got close enough, you were in the line of fire. That week, I had watched some of the best photojournalists in the business, veterans of Chechnya and Afghanistan and Bosnia, leave almost immediately after those first bombs fell. It's not worth it, they said. There were several moments when I thought to myself, this is insane. What am I doing? But there were other days when I felt that familiar exhilaration, when I thought, I'm actually watching an uprising unfold. I'm watching these people fighting to the death for their freedom, and I'm documenting the fate of a society that has been oppressed for decades. Until you get injured or shot or kidnapped, you believe you're invincible, and it had been a few years since anything happened to me. 
When we reached a roundabout, Tyler and Anthony got out and walked off to interview some rebels. Some were watching the approaching action with nonchalance. Others were scurrying around, shooting their weapons into the air. I was directionless. I didn't want to be here or there and could barely lift my camera to my eyes. Even the most experienced photographers have days like this. You can't frame a shot, catch the moment. My fear was debilitating, like a physical handicap. Tyler, meanwhile, was in his element, focused and relentless. I imagined the images he was capturing while I was clumsy, scared, missing the scenes, clicking the shutter too late. As I ran forward to follow him, I heard the familiar whoosh of a bullet. I looked up at the rooftops. Qaddafi snipers were in the city. I assumed that everyone realized the gravity of the situation, but back near the car, Anthony was drinking tea with a handful of men beside an ammunition truck, chatting happily in Arabic. He looked older than his 40-something years, with a gray beard and soft stomach. His eyes sparkled, warm and friendly, as he listened to the Libyans, calmly smoking a cigarette and throwing his hands around, as if hanging out with friends by a pool. But Steve, who had been kidnapped twice, once in Iraq and once in Afghanistan, looked spooked. He stood by the car with Muhammad, as if this might inspire the others to finish their work. The locals around us were screaming, Kanas, Kanas, sniper, sniper. Muhammad was getting frantic. We have to go to Benghazi, he pleaded. His brother had been calling, warning that Gaddafi's men had entered the city from the west. He called us all back to the car, and we took off for the eastern gate of town. On the road toward the exit, Tyler asked Muhammad to stop the car one last time to check out a team of rebel fighters setting up rocket-propelled grenades. He reluctantly pulled off to the side of the road, and Tyler leapt out to shoot, buoyed by a rush of adrenaline I knew very well, that feeling of satisfaction when doing reporting that few others would dare do. Muhammad immediately called his brother again to check in. I knew we were pushing the boundaries, lingering after we had been warned to leave, but my desire to pull back to safety felt like a terrible weakness. My colleagues would never have accused me of being wimpy or unprofessional. I was the one who was only all too aware of being the only woman in the car. A car pulled up alongside us. They're in the city. They're in the city. Tyler, Muhammad shouted, his face wrecked with fear. Let's go, Steve screamed. Tyler clambered into the car and we took off. The night before, my editor David and I agreed I would call him at 9 a.m. in New York. I checked my watch and dialed his number. I couldn't get a line out. I dialed again. Nothing. I kept redialing his extension over and over, punching at the phone. When I looked up and squinted into the distance, I saw something I hadn't seen in weeks. Traffic. I think it's Gaddafi's men, I said. Tyler and Anthony shook their heads. No way, Tyler said. Within seconds, the fuzzy horizon distilled into little olive figurines. I had been right. Tyler realized it too. Don't stop, he screamed. You have two options when you approach a hostile checkpoint, and both are a gamble. The first option is to stop and identify yourselves as journalists and hope you are respected as neutral professionals. The second option is to blow past them and hope they don't open fire on you. Don't stop, don't stop, Tyler was yelling. But Muhammad was slowing down, sticking his head out of the window. Sahafa, media, he yelled to the soldiers. He opened the car to get out, and Gaddafi's soldiers swarmed around him. Sahafi. In one fluid moment, the doors flew open, and Tyler, Steve, and Anthony were ripped out of the car. I immediately locked my door and buried my head in my lap. Gunshots shattered the air. When I looked up, I was alone. I knew I had to get out of the car to run for cover, but I couldn't move. I spoke to myself out loud, a tactic I used when my inner voice wasn't convincing enough. Get out of the car. Get out. Run. I crawled across the back seat with my head down and out the open car door, scrambled to my feet, and immediately felt the hands of a soldier pulling at my arms and tugging at my two cameras. The harder he pulled, the harder I pulled back. Bullets whipped past us. Dirt kicked up around my feet. The rebels were barraging the army's checkpoint from behind us, the place we had just fled. The soldier pulled at my camera with one hand and pointed his gun at me with the other. We stood like that for ten interminable seconds. 
Out of the corner of my eye, I saw Tyler running towards a one-story cement building up ahead. I trusted his instincts. We needed to get out of the line of fire before we could negotiate our fate with these soldiers. I surrendered my waste pack and one camera and clutched the other, pulling the memory cards out as I ran after my colleagues, who in the chaos of the bullets had also escaped their captors. My legs felt slow as my eyes stayed trained on Anthony ahead of me. Anthony, I screamed, Anthony, help me. But Anthony had tripped and fallen to his knees. When he looked up, his normally peaceful face was wrenched with panic, oblivious to my screams. His face looked so unnatural that it terrified me more than anything else. We had to reach Tyler, who had sprinted ahead and seemed the likeliest to escape. Somehow the four of us reunited at the cinder block building, set back from the road, sheltered from the gun battle that continued to range behind us. A Libyan woman holding an infant stood nearby, crying, while a soldier tried to console them. He didn't bother with us because he knew we had nowhere to go. I'm thinking of making a run for it, Tyler said. We looked into the distance. The open desert stretched every direction. Within seconds, five government soldiers were upon us, pointing their guns and yelling in Arabic, their voices full of hate and adrenaline, their faces contorted into massive rage. They ordered us face down in the dirt, motioning with our hands. We all paused, assuming this was the moment of our execution, and then we slowly crouched down and begged for our lives. I pressed my face into the soil, sucking in a mouthful of dirt as a soldier pulled my hands behind my back and kicked open my legs. The soldiers were all screaming at us, at one another, pointing their weapons at our heads as the four of us sank into silent submission, waiting to be shot. I looked over at Anthony, Steve, and Tyler to make sure we were all still there, still together and alive, and then quickly looked back down at the sand. Oh God, oh God, oh God, please save us, God, please save us. I raised my eyes from the ground and looked up into the gun barrel, indirectly into the soldier's eyes. The only thing I could think to do was beg, but my mouth was so dry as if my saliva had been replaced with dirt. I could barely utter a word. Please, I whispered. Please. I waited for the crack of the gun, for the end of my life. I thought of Paul, of my parents, my sisters, my two grandmothers, well into their 90s. Each second felt like its own space in the universe. The soldiers continued barking at one another with their guns leveled at our heads. Jawaz, one of them, yelled suddenly. They wanted our passports, and we surrendered them. The soldier leaned down and started searching my body for my belongings, pulling things out of my jacket pockets, my Blackberry, my memory cards, some loose bills. His hands moved quickly, skipping over my second passport, which was secretly tucked into a money belt inside my jeans, until they reached my breasts. He stopped, and then he squeezed them like a child honking a horn. Please, God, I just don't want to be raped. I curled as tightly as I could into fetal position, but the soldier was preoccupied with something else. He removed my gray Nikes with fluorescent yellow soles, and I heard the whipping sound of the laces being pulled out. I felt air on my feet. He tied my ankles together. With a piece of fabric, he pulled my wrists behind my back and tied them together so tightly they went numb. Then he pushed my face down into the filthy earth. Would I see my parents again? Would I see Paul again? How could I do this to them? Would I get my cameras back? How did I get to this place? The soldiers picked me up by my hands and feet and carried me away. I'm Eric Schlosser, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. 
Okay, and we'll return at the end of the interview to where you've just left us, Lindsay. But let's talk, well, first of all, a bit more generally about photojournalism. First of all, tell us how you, how did you get into it? How did you find yourself in this world in the first place? Yeah, I never set out to be a photographer. I started out uh, very interested in international relations and politics and different cultures. And I grew up in a family of hairdressers, Mm -hmm. actually. So I had no exposure to sort of what the various options were for careers. Mm -hmm. And my family was very eccentric. My parents never said, you have to go to a good school and you have to be this or that. They sort of left it up to us. Mm -hmm. And so I started photographing when I was about 12 or 13. Uh, My father gave me an old Nikon FG camera, a film Mm -hmm. camera. And I started teaching myself how to use the camera and how to photograph. And I did that for many years. A friend of my mother's was a photographer. She Mm -hmm. taught me how to develop and print in the darkroom. Then I went to university and I studied international relations and and I stayed on course. It never sort of, I never took photography seriously. I always thought of it as something sort of like a hobby or Mm -hmm. something frivolous. And uh, it wasn't until after I graduated from university where I realized, I became aware of photojournalism Mm -hmm. and I realized that, okay, actually this is what I might want to do because it's a perfect way of telling stories with images and of exploring different Mm -hmm. cultures. And so it was sort of the marriage of all of those things. But you also had to, I mean, you you left home to do this as well, because you started out in Mexico. I started, um, well, I started in Argentina, Uh actually, in Buenos Aires, and I did have to leave home, but I never had a problem with that. I actually (laughs) love traveling, and and from when I was very small, and I loved going to a place and being anonymous, and I'd studied in uh, Bologna, actually, Mm -hmm. in university, so I was alone for a year. Then Argentina, I went there to learn Spanish, and I was 21. It was right after Mm -hmm. I graduated, and there I really started photographing more and more and got a job at the local Buenos Aires Herald. So I wanted to talk about, I mean, I guess just the logistics. How does that world work? Because you have... You are attached to certain titles, but you are also a freelance worker. So how do you sure. how do you get commissioned? How is sure. the travel organized? Let's just talk about the nuts and bolts yeah. of it. Sure. Um, well, I've been freelance my entire career, and which is now almost twenty years. And so I think for me. Uh, it's very important to be loyal to mm-hmm. certain publications and to be available for them as much as you can be. Because editors, I've learned throughout the years that editors come to rely on certain photographers mm-hmm. to go all over. And for many, many years, I was sort of a go-to person for the New York Times. And yeah. I would go to wherever they asked and get on the first plane and get myself there and literally parachute into a story and get set up and mm-hmm. file right away. I think that's a very important part of the, the deal and, and how it works is there, it can come from both ways. Either Mm -hmm. I pitch a story that I'm interested in, or the New York Times, for example, will come to me and say, hey, we have this story in X, I don't know, Mali, Mm -hmm. uh, on education in Mali. Can you go there and work for us? And and so we agree on some, not a very loose amount of time I'll be there. And of course, we both sort of agree that I'll stay longer or, Mm -hmm. or shorter, depending on how the story goes. And I go, and usually I'm paired up with a correspondent, and all all the work I do while I'm there, they have first rights to, and then those rights revert back to me, and I have an agency, uh, Getty Reportage, and mm-hmm. they will then syndicate those stories. Photojournalism, certainly the war reporting side, is often seen for people on the outside as a bit sort of macho and gung-ho and reckless yeah. in, in a lot of respects. You're a woman, and we can sit around and think of 
a lot of disadvantages that being a woman might mean in that world. But I want to talk about what have you found over the years to be advantages? I actually have found uh, tremendous advantages Mm -hmm. in being a woman. I think that, uh, first of all, I have access. I work mostly in the Muslim world, right? So I have access to men and women. Mm -hmm. And I find that that is a great advantage to begin with. I also can walk into private homes very easily. Many families invite Mm -hmm. me in. That's something that in very conservative tribal cultures that doesn't happen to my male colleagues because there's a whole uh, traditionally men who are not married into the family or blood relatives do not enter private at home. Mm-hmm. So for me, that's a great advantage. Um, in terms of working on the front line, I don't think it matters if you're a man or a woman. I think basically you have to be physically fit. Mm-hmm. You have to have you know the wherewithal of mind. You have to be able to handle yourself under fire. That is something both men and women can do. If the terrain is very difficult, obviously, it's harder for me as a woman because I'm five feet tall. I'm being five feet one. Um, sometimes I have to do six, seven hour patrols, mm-hmm. a very rigorous landscape, and that becomes more difficult. But I think overall, most of the troops that I've been with over the years are carrying dozens, mm-hmm. if not hundreds of rounds of ammunition. So, of course, they're weighed down as well. So I think it evens out. And, mm-hmm. and so I don't, I think the great disadvantage of being a woman or that it's very macho, yes, it's very macho, there's no question, but I actually have found great advantages in being a woman. You often mention in the book how willing people are in the developing world to have their photographs taken. You are, I think, surprised at that at the beginning. Do you think that's anything to do with who you are? I think it has to do with your approach. Mm. I think, you know, I think people can read people very easily. It's the same. You know, at the end of the day, we're all the same. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if someone approaches you and you feel like they have some ulterior motive, then you're not going to be very open to them. You know, for me, I've always cared very deeply about these stories. Mm -hmm. When I'm doing a story, I throw myself fully into it. And I approach people with humility. I mean, I'm going to them and asking them for their time and Mm -hmm. their personal stories. So I think it's very important to be respectful towards Mm -hmm. people and to be patient and to be honest and full disclosure about what it is I'm doing and how those images will be used. And I think if you do that with people, then generally they open up. So what are you doing? I want to talk about what you see your role as being. What's the role of a a photojournalist? Especially in something like, again like in a war zone where sure. it's obviously somebody that's there that's, you know, in some respects a, a burden, something sure. that someone else has got to look out for. Well, I think it's sort of two-pronged. First of all, as a war photographer, mm-hmm. as someone covering the front line, I think my responsibility is primarily to documenting what's happening there, documenting how the troops are, what's happening in combat, uh, what's happening to civilians, what, you know, exactly um, providing basically a historical document or a relevant document to policymakers, people... Uh, humanitarians, people who are trying to figure out how to handle the repercussions of that war Mm -hmm. or how to stop it or how to whatever. I mean, I think for me, my job is to basically document. When it comes to women's stories or human rights abuses, uh, for me, I think I'm trying to give a voice to people Mm -hmm. who don't necessarily have a voice. I'm trying to be a messenger. I'm trying to show what it is they're thinking and feeling and what they've been through. Because I think it's very important to have testimonies from people and in their voice, not in my voice. Because you know, often people who are in positions of power and making these decisions can't access these people firsthand because Mm -hmm. of security issues or because of the fact that they're in very remote villages and they won't go there. 
there. So I think it's important for me to sort of connect the dots mm-hmm. and to be that person who can go on the ground, go to remote places, figure out what's going on, record that, photograph that, and bring it home or bring it to the readers of whatever publication I'm working for. And is there ever, I mean, a tension? You're, you're there often to document the civilian casualties and sort of, I was going to say, the bad side of war. It's all bad. Um, But often, especially in the worst situations, you know, you have to be there embedded as part of the American war machine that's invading this place in the first place. So how how does that work out? How are those tensions? Well, I think, you know, again, I go into a situation, I'm not sitting there, you know, talking about my political views. Mm -hmm. I keep myself very quiet and very focused on my work. Because while I might have an opinion about the American invasion in Iraq, for example, and I disagree and I think it's, you know, fabricated Mm -hmm. reasons, that's not my place. You know, when I'm in the field and I'm in Iraq and I'm on an embed with the Mm -hmm. military, I am keeping my mouth shut and I'm photographing what I see because, frankly, I'm with the troops. It's not these guys who have made the decision of policy. Mm -hmm. You know, these are 18, 20 year old soldiers from Indiana, you know, so I'm just there to photograph what I see. I think I do photograph really horrible things in war, but I think often the people who are committing those crimes or who are in the fighting, the fighters themselves, believe in that war as, you know, they believe they need to be there to fight Mm -hmm. that war. And so they often are open to having journalists. And if they're not, then, you know, that obviously makes my job harder, which is like what happened in Libya when I got Mm -hmm. taken by Qaddafi's troops. This book is subtitled A Photographer's Life of Love, and war and well actually although things turn out okay in the end we won't spoil it too much for people this is really a a catalogue of disastrous relationships and sort of fleeting (laughs) love affairs this is not a life that that is for anybody I'm not referring just to you but for any photojournalist this is not a life where you can have a normal home life is it no, it's very, it's extremely difficult. And I, you know, I didn't sort of catalog my love affairs as a way to say, look, you know, here I am, this big stud who's gone all over the world. No, I did it to show, you know, it is an extremely difficult life. Uh, people think that it's it's very glamorous to be mm-hmm. a war correspondent. Or it's very glamorous to work for National Geographic. Well, in fact, there are great personal sacrifices that we all make, you know, and it's it's quite a lonely life. And, and most of the relationships do fall apart mm-hmm. if you're on the road. I mean, for me, for most of my, uh, at the height of my sort of photographic career, I was on the road 280 days a year. I mean, that's completely unsustainable for a relationship because basically I would go home to do my laundry mm-hmm. and leave. Um, and I think it's important to be honest about that stuff because I'm not, you know, I feel like as a journalist, I have asked people to be honest with me. And if I took on this memoir, which I did, I wanted to be honest about myself mm-hmm. and my own failures. This is a job that obviously, it goes without saying, is is incredibly dangerous. And all through this book, as we'll get on to talk about in the next couple of parts of the show, it's fraught with danger, but it seems to be getting more dangerous. And there seems to be a couple of reasons for this. First of all, funding. You know, the internet has taken a lot of money away from newspapers. We're almost at the point where you find in people who write blogs (laughs) in war zones. Also... ISIS and the rise of things, you know, organisations that seem to have even less regard for journalism and journalists and non-combatants than even, you know, those sort of groups had before. So how has it changed over the sort of 12 or 15 years that you've been working? How have you seen the world change? 
Well, a lot has changed in the sense that uh, when I first started out, journalists were not really a target. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think we were still sort of respected as neutral observers and respected for uh, providing a service. We often had access to various different sides of a story. Mm -hmm. I think that with the rise of ISIS, with the rise in kidnappings of journalists, uh, that has, has really changed in the sense that it is very limited where a Western journalist can work mm-hmm. and work freely because there are bounties on so many of our heads. Of course, if we're talking about Syria, Iraq, there haven't been kidnappings in Yemen, but certainly it's a difficult place to cover because mm-hmm. you there's Al-Qaeda there. There are organizations there that have shown that they're willing to kidnap and hold journalists for ransom. Mm-hmm. So I think it's very important to be aware as a journalist uh, not only of the story that you want to cover, but Mm -hmm. what actually the risks are in terms of who are the different players Mm -hmm. and what is their traditionally what has been their uh, outlook on journalism and journalists and how they treat them. Um, I think in terms of the amount, the sheer amount of different venues for journalists Mm. to publish work and and the rise of the internet, of course it's made it harder for newspapers and traditional publications because there's so much competition. But at the same time, you can flip that around and look at it in a positive light and say, well, it used to be that if the New York Times and Time Magazine weren't interested in something, I had nowhere else to go with it. Mm -hmm. Well, now I have 20 different little online platforms that are willing Mm -hmm. to put it out there. So I think... I think there are, you know, there are pros and cons. Of course, the budgets that are less and less to send journalists into war zones, that's very difficult because Mm -hmm. it's causing people to cut corners in places where it would be life-threatening to cut corners. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't want to cut corners in war zones because you do need that security apparatus. So how is that changing the approach? And I mean, do you see it? I mean, I can only see at the moment this getting worse, not better. Even the New York Times one day might not have the resources to be fully funding and more importantly protecting and being able to, you know, the, the story of, that we'll get onto at the end of this show of your kidnapping in Libya sees behind the scenes, though that newspaper working very hard to get you back, a blog, a, a website isn't going to have the resources to do that. So. No, I mean, I think that, you know, each publication is figuring out how to move forward. Many publications have just said, forget it, we're not mm. sending correspondence in. And that, I think, across the board has been the most common answer. I mean, you see less and less correspondence being sent in to volatile situations because the publications just say, we can't, we don't have the resources to try to get someone out. Mm-hmm. In terms of a blog or, or a freelancer like myself who chooses to go into a war zone to mm-hmm. sort of cut his or her teeth or, you know, we all have to get started somewhere. I think that that person has to be very aware of what the risks are and be willing to face the fact that maybe no one will get them out. Mm -hmm. So what are they willing to do and how close are they willing to go if indeed they have no one working to get them out?
listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Lindsay Adario, and we're talking about her book, It's What I Do, A Photographer's Life of Love and War. And so, Lindsay, let's start talking about some of those engagements, some of those embeds that you've done. And, well, well let's start actually with uh, post-9-11 years in Iraq, and actually you start off your journey into Iraq in Kurdistan, tracking refugees from Iraq. So let's, let's talk about your... Um, you enter into Iraq, and then and then sort of gradually we'll we'll get away to uh, to Baghdad, and then we can perhaps talk about what happens in Fallujah as well. So I uh, didn't really know what to expect when I was going into Iraq. I didn't have any combat experience. I had covered mm-hmm. the fall of the Taliban in Kandahar, but I really didn't know what to expect. So I, like so many of the journalists who were working in northern Iraq at that mm-hmm. time, Kurdistan, had snuck in through Iran, and so we went in. We had visas to Iran, and mm-hmm. we snuck into northern than Iraq without pieces. And when we got in, it was there was a proxy war going on. There were um, Al-Ansar fighters, a mm-hmm. fundamentalist group that uh, the Peshmerga were fighting with the backing mm-hmm. of the U.S. military. And that was sort of going on while we were all waiting, basically, for the fall of Saddam. Mm-hmm. There wasn't really a refugee crisis. It was basically more or less this proxy war. There were people fleeing from inside mm-hmm. northern Iraq out of certain villages that Ansar had taken over. And eventually, in early April, Saddam was deposed. And so, of course, our goal as journalists was to cover that and Mm -hmm. to get to uh, southern Iraq. And so immediately we started moving down from Suleimania, Erbil, down through Tikrit, Kirkuk, Mosul, and then making our way to Baghdad. So for me, it was uh, originally I had been on for the New York Times magazine. I eventually went on for Time magazine, and then I went back on for the New York Times. And so what was Baghdad like at that time? Because you describe, I mean, you're not even, there's the green zone, the famous sort of green zone where the sort of military and military contractors live. And journalists aren't even living in there at that point. You're out in the wider city. No, I mean, the most, you know, there were incredibly astonishing images from that time of, for example, each city we entered, you know, this was very, very fresh. This is right when Saddam fell. So Mm. his palaces were wide open. I mean, Mm -hmm. these uh, security offices that had been closed to the public forever, everything was wide open. So we were walking in and out of Saddam's palaces. Mm -hmm. They were being pillaged by thousands of Kurds and Iraqis going in and basically walking away with anything that wasn't nailed down. We Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Went into the prisons that had been, some of them had been emptied out. We went mm-hmm. in, we went everywhere. And that is the strangest thing about the fall of a leader that you can go in. I mean, I remember one day uh, me and Ben Lowy, a fellow photojournalist, went in to... Uh, Saddam Hussein's private photographer's house in the what then became the green zone. It wasn't mm-hmm. set up yet. And there were thousands of negatives and photographs of Saddam and his family, these private photos that had never been seen, thrown all over the floor and mm-hmm. everywhere. And just everything is sort of free reign when a regime falls. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, of course, the green zone was set up. But there were these initial sort of days and weeks of euphoria. People felt very free. They would mm-hmm. pull uh, American troops out of their Humvees and kiss them and throw flowers on them. I mean, they still liked Americans, mm-hmm. some of them. And then uh, very quickly people became disillusioned with mm. that because there was no electricity, there was little water, there wasn't propane gas for cooking. And mm-hmm. so people couldn't get money out of the banks. They had to wait online for days to get money. So very quickly it was clear there was no system for the aftermath of the fall of Saddam. And then people got frustrated and there were uh, people demonstrating mm-hmm. and becoming very antsy. And, and then the insurgency started. I was going to say, what was that period where people were starting to get frustrated with the lack of infrastructure you were there and there's a photograph in the book of like uh, people killing something in this green smoke what mm. was describe what that was well that was an incredibly surreal day because that was a propane tank uh, refilling like people w- had waited online for hours and and I went and sort of at that time there was so much to photograph so you'd wake up in the morning and just go from thing to thing to thing to thing and mm. you'd hear about okay they're filling propane tanks there's a line and people are shooting outside the bank because they can't get in so I went there and I was waiting online with the people and suddenly everyone was getting very antsy they were pushing and screaming and saying to the American soldiers who were guarding the outside mm-hmm. saying you know uh, where's the gas where's the propane gas you know and so it wasn't coming and suddenly we were gassed by the American soldiers with this very strange sort of fluorescent green gas and to this day I have no idea what it was I didn't pass out or anything but it was this very strange moment because I sort of thought what is happening? Aren't we here? Like, didn't we liberate these people? (laughs) And suddenly it looks like we're oppressing them. And it seemed like a very incongruous moment Mm -hmm. where I couldn't really figure out, like, was our presence there a good thing or a bad thing? And I, you know, I really went into that war sort of wide-eyed and and not really knowing. I was somewhat skeptical about the reasons for the invasion, Mm -hmm. but I didn't, I wanted to keep an open mind and say, okay, what's going to happen? And I want to be there to document it. And so then uh at, at some point later on, you find yourself driving with a colleague and a driver on a smuggler's route around Fallujah. So take up that story. Tell us what. So that was a year later. So that was a full year later. The insurgency was full on at that mm-hmm. time. I mean, not, you know, there were bombs going on throughout Baghdad, all mm-hmm. around the country. Um, it was Sunni insurgency. Uh, there was a Sunni triangle which was sort of around Fallujah, Ramadi, a lot of these places that are still in the news today. Mm-hmm. And so I was working with a New York Times colleague. We had heard that an American helicopter had gone down, mm-hmm. and it was not verified. So we wanted to figure out if it was true. So the roads had already been closed off. The main roads had already been closed off to Fallujah because the, the Americans were gearing up towards the first siege of yeah. Fallujah. So they closed off all the roads. 
So the only way around was uh, the smuggler's route. So we we made some phone calls and and we decided to risk it. And we went. I don't remember how far into our journey, but pretty quickly, uh, our car was surrounded by. I don't know, dozens of insurgents with their faces wrapped and rockets on their backs and guns and shooting in the air. And, you know, very quickly, uh, my door was locked and I was dressed like an Iraqi woman. I mean, Mm -hmm. I had full, full hijab. I had an abaya, everything. And I think the insurgents thought that I was Iraqi and so an Iraqi woman. And so they pulled the driver and translator out of the car. They pulled my colleague out of the car and they sort of left me sitting in the car. Mm -hmm. And I just thought okay, well, this isn't going to work because my colleague is an American man Mm -hmm. and certainly if they take him alone, they're going to kill him. So I very stupidly jumped out of the car and said, no, wait, this is my husband. You can't take him. So I jumped out and sort of, you know, went with him because Mm -hmm. I just think often when there's a woman present, it throws off the balance. Like I think people don't necessarily know how to react in a hostile situation if there's a woman there and particularly if there's a husband and wife, you Mm -hmm. know, whether even though we weren't really husband and wife, we said we were. And so I think it sort of helps tone down the situation a little bit. And also bit. you had the presence of mind to both claim not to be American as well. Yeah, well, I mean, we had actually discussed that on the way, yeah, on the way that day. You were basically kidnapped for a bit, but I mean, and a obviously day. must have been <laughs> like appalling at the time. But as we'll relate later on in the show, this was actually quite a, a nice introduction to kidnapping. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was like my kidnapping 101. <laughs> I think, um, you know, of course, I, in retrospect, it was nothing. I mean, it was not bad. But certainly in the moment when you have guns to your head yeah. for an entire day and you don't know if you'll be released, it's terrifying. And, of course, you never know. The thing about something like what happened in mm-hmm. Garma, Garma was the village outside of Fallujah, is that you just don't know if you'll get released. And that's what's so terrifying. And, of course, you're trying to convince these people that you're Journalist, and mm-hmm. you're there for them to tell their side of the story and to talk about the war. But ultimately, it's up to them what they want to do to you. And there's there's an interesting sort of contrast between this terror of not knowing if you're going to be shot in the dirt mm-hmm. at any moment, and conversely, sort of extreme Muslim hospitality as well. So yeah, <laughs> I mean, I it's funny because I often find the one thing people in the West I find do not understand is the unbelievable hospitality in, in the Middle East and in most of the Muslim world because honestly, it's almost sort of, they can't help themselves, you know, it's like even when I met the Taliban in Pakistan you know, I I sort of went in and met the Taliban with Dexter Filkins for the New York Times Magazine and at one point I was in this room with like about 15 Taliban fighters and very sort of hostile men and and suddenly someone was like, Madam, we would like to serve you tea, but we can't figure out how you could drink tea through your veil you know, I mean, for them it was like they were really stressed about offering hospitality Hospitality. So I think it is this very sort of odd thing that always sort of surfaces or often does at some point. But they made you stand in the corner to drink your tea. Yeah, 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 they did. I had to stand in the corner, lift my veil so none of the men could see my face, drink my tea, and then come back. <laughs> I'm Caitlin Doty. Go and read some great new journalism and explore the interview archives at littleadams.com. I want to move us on to, to Afghanistan, and I was going to start with a couple of those early encounters with the Taliban. There's basically a a, a sequence of time when you're waiting to get 
a visa mm. and you're having to go and deal every single day with the, the Taliban visa clerks. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you sort of strike up a, a little bit of a relationship with one of them. Mm. I say a relationship. Yeah, well, we, we spoke. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that would be akin to a relationship at that time. Um, I, you know, I had sort of been given bits of advice here and there, and I was terrified to get my first Taliban visa. I didn't mm. know if I would actually get it, but I did. You know, they were giving visas to journalists, but certainly a single American woman was a, mm-hmm. a harder thing. And so I went in, and my roommate at the time had said, you know, go in every single day and drink tea with them and basically sit there until they acknowledge you. You know, mm-hmm. do not leave until you have a conversation. And so I went back every single day, mm-hmm. and finally he started asking me questions about, you know, is it true that men and women, you know, in the West or in America, they, they meet before they get married? You know, he started sort of becoming brazen. Those mm-hmm. are questions that are very bold yeah. for, a, you know, a deeply conservative man. And, mm-hmm. and for me, I was a 26-year-old woman. And I was sort of intrigued by the whole idea of like, here we are, you know, we come from such different places and such different Mm -hmm. backgrounds. And actually, it's all the same. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, this guy ultimately is like a young kid who happens to be a Taliban who's Mm -hmm. curious about men and women, you know. So it was interesting. And I really I wrote about that in the moment. I mean, I was keeping journals at that time. And I really kept note of that entire situation because that first trip to Afghanistan under the Taliban was incredible and and really enlightening. So I want to talk about a a later trip to Afghanistan when you're you're embedded with the 173rd Airborne in a place called the Korangol Valley, which is described as the most dangerous place in the world at that time. So how do you get, let's talk about how you get embedded first of all, and then we can talk about that trek. So the process of embedding with the American military at that time was tedious. I mean, complicated, of course, because it's a military and if they're going to take long journalists, they have to do serious background checks. So it took, it could take anywhere from a few weeks to, you know, six months. I Mm. mean, the military really, they had to vet you, figure out how much experience you had in war zones. Uh, You had to do your medical conditions, everything. And then eventually before you went out with the military, you had to sign waivers about what happens if a a soldier is killed in front of you. Mm -hmm. You have to get permission from the next of kin. It's a very tedious process. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of the Korangal Valley, uh, I had done numerous, numerous embeds at that time. This was 2007. And I really wanted to... Actually, in Afghanistan, I hadn't done... Let me just think for a second. In Iraq, I had done numerous embeds. In Afghanistan, I don't remember if I had done embeds before that that mm-hmm. particular one. And uh, we put in for our papers, and, and we got the go-ahead and flew into, or went to Jalalabad, which mm-hmm. was sort of the, the headquarters of the East. And we went into the public affairs officer, and we said, you know, we would like to go to the Korangal Valley. Mm-hmm. And I was with a female colleague of mine, and he sort of looked at us like, we were completely insane. And he said, you can't go to the Korangal Valley because it's not a place that's fit for women. And this is when the U.S. Defense Department had a law saying women could not be on the front mm-hmm. line, but military women. Yeah. And, of course, journalists are this odd third sex that had, like, not all the rules apply to us. And so we said, well, why isn't it fit for women? He said, well, there's no place you could sleep and there's no place for you to go to the bathroom. And we said, well, where do the men sleep and where do the men go to the bathroom? And he said, well, the men sleep in a bunker. And we mm-hmm. said, well, we could 
could sleep in a bunker, you know, we're, we're fine to do that. And, and so it went on from there. The next day he said, basically like, I got to talk to my higher ups Mm -hmm. and, and we'll come back to you. And so he came back the next day and said, okay, go, you could fly to the Cornwall. And so we went on a military aircraft and, and it was for about two months on and off. I left in the middle for a short stint. Uh, we stayed on the side of a mountain uh, in the Korangal Valley at the headquarters there, the Korangal Outpost, and lived in a bunker and did six, seven-hour-a-day patrols, were mm-hmm. shot at, mortared, uh, extremely hostile, uh, worked up to a battalion-wide operation called Operation Rock Avalanche, where we jumped out of Blackhawks off onto the side of a mountain in the middle of the night. Uh, walked for six days with everything mm-hmm. we owned on our backs. It was rigorous and terrifying. And so what's that like, to live under just constant attack, or at least constant threat of attack? Well, I think in the beginning, it's, um, of course, it's terrifying, you know, and, and but I think, oddly and almost sickly, you become used to it, because mm-hmm. it, it becomes sort of the daily rhythm. And so when the first crack of the bullets happen, you just know... You you go into this sort of automatic pilot and you know what to do and and I think it becomes the norm and mm-hmm. and something like Operation Rock Avalanche where we you know it was incredibly stressful and we were ambushed at the end of the operation and and hit from three sides by the Taliban I don't think I could have done anything like that had I not spent the previous two months with them because these are guys we had gotten to know mm-hmm. we had gotten incredibly strong just by virtue of being there and patrolling every day we had gotten very hardened and very sort of in the rhythm of war. Mm-hmm. And I think I think it's such an incredible experience and privilege for any journalist to be able to spend that amount of time with the troops mm-hmm. because really it's up to the commanding officers, it's up to the, you know, whoever is in command of whether they want to let a journalist stay that long mm-hmm. because most embeds only last a week or two. And there were casualties at the end of that, there of that were. mission. I- We were ambushed at the end. Uh, We were hit from three sides, and three soldiers were shot. Uh, Sergeant Rugel was killed, Um, and I was airlifted out with Sergeant Rugel's belongings the day after because I just had had enough. He was somebody that you you know you'd really got to know over those weeks. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, not in like he wasn't like a dear friend, but certainly when you're sitting on the side of a mountain for two weeks mm-hmm. with the same person, you get to know them. I mean, there's nothing else to do but talk. I mean, you can read a book. Inevitably, you finish that book, and then you end up reading whatever is next to you, or you talk, and mm-hmm. so you have these long talks over the course of months. And so, I think all of these guys we got to know in an oddly intimate way, even though we would never have been friends outside Mm -hmm. of the Gaul. How difficult is it to be dispassionate in that? You're there as... I mean, I want to talk later about photojournalists of your acquaintance who have been killed, perhaps, and you're there documenting, you know, wars and famines and bombings and there's, there's bodies everywhere, but this is... You're there as a dispassionate observer, but yet you've spent time with these people. How easy is, is it to sort of to witness that? Well, first of all, I'm not dispassionate. I mean, I'm incapable mm-hmm. of being dispassionate. I'm not. I'm just genetically, it's just never going to happen. So I'm not. I mean, I, I could be neutral or I could, you know, in my photographs be neutral. But in my head, I'm incredibly passionate and have opinions. So mm. I think I get to know people and I fall in love with people. Uh, all the time, not on a romantic level, but intellectually. I love talking to people and get to, getting to know them, and that's mm-hmm. a great part of my job is the fact that I can 
walk in and out of so many different people's lives yeah. who are extraordinary. So I think, you know, I don't keep myself removed and I'm not, that's not who I am. So I think that that's important to know. You've already mentioned earlier in the interview you know, your political opposition to, to these wars and it's well documented the terrible behaviour and the atrocities and stuff. But what comes over time and time again in this book and particularly this sequence in in Afghanistan is how dedicated these soldiers are and how much they care about the people and how much they, they agonise over the decisions about whether a village is going to be bombed and stuff. Mm. So what, without wanting to suggest that ultimately their mission is right or wrong i mean how does your you know your opinion of seeing those people change while you while you're there well first of all i think you know what i wanted to get across in this book is the fact that there are so all of these situations are so nuanced mm-hmm. and you know we might think as readers and as observers back home that we understand what's going on but there's so mu- there's so much we don't see and there's so much intelligence we mm-hmm. don't have access to and for example in the Korngal when we were on that that operation but operation rock avalanche you know we saw the insurgents holding women and children on the roofs of these houses Mm -hmm. in combat you know we see human shields with our own eyes we see you know the fact that we're shot at first and of course these guys are going to protect themselves that's not always the case Mm -hmm. i mean i've seen soldiers bust into a house that was just a family and they round up the women in their nightgowns and in the arab world in the middle east that's completely the most offensive thing Mm -hmm. you can do so i've seen all sides but the thing that i wanted to get across is that these situations happen and I'm not there, you know, I put it out there not to make some sort of statement either way, but to just let the reader judge for themselves and see that so much does happen behind the scenes, you know, that you're not always getting access to every single bit of information. And you should be aware of that as a listener or as a reader. Atoms. I'm Neil Denny and I'm talking to Lindsay Adario and we're talking about her book It's What I Do, A Photographer's Life of Love and War. And Lindsay, I want to talk about, you sort of widened out the work that you did from war reporting to doing more longer essay type photojournalism for life and for National Geographic and stuff and particularly in Africa. And so I want to talk about why, what was it about Africa that you particularly, you were particularly taken by it, weren't you? I was. I mean, Africa is just an incredible place, not only because it's colorful and the light is beautiful and aesthetically for mm-hmm. a photographer it's beautiful, but the people are so warm and open and, and just inspiring and resilient. They embody so much in the hardship they've endured and how optimistic or how they just continue to soldier on. And I mm-hmm. think that those, over the years as I've covered Africa, I just fall more and more in love with it in terms of the people and the place and the aesthetic. I mean, it really embodies everything. And yet it is, I mean, absolutely hellish, the conditions that you encounter. And in Darfur particularly, you, you document 
women that are sort of rape victims of war. Darfur was the first place I came in contact of, um, with women who have been victims of mm-hmm. rape as a weapon of war. And, and um, But then I continued to do that work mm-hmm. in Congo, in the Democratic yeah. Republic of Congo. And so the bulk of that work on women, uh, rape victims, was in Congo. Yeah. And that work was done with a grant. It was the first time that I had received a photographic mm-hmm. grant. And, and the first time that I can really... I could really focus on a body of work without deadlines, uh, without having a writer with me who was dictating where the story would go. And that is, I love having a writer with me because it's basically like having two brains to work with rather Mm -hmm. than one. But in terms of photography and in terms of a story that I wanted it to really be straight testimony, what it was like in these women's words Mm -hmm. and portraits. And so really it was sort of very straightforward. And it was so incredible to spend two weeks basically just speaking to these women day and night. Uh, I interviewed dozens of women and recorded their testimony and that was um, that body of work was part of Congo women mm-hmm. that uh, ended up being exhibited in countries around the world. Let's go back to where we, we left off at the beginning of the show with you basically trussed up and about to be thrown into the into the back of a truck in Libya. It's, you know, post the Arab Spring, um, Gaddafi has still not quite fallen. So it was the beginning of the Libyan uprising, so it was March of 2011, and we entered illegally from Egypt, and we were covering the front line. It was me and a handful, I guess, of Mm -hmm. photographers who stuck together. And the fighting was incredibly intense. So unlike Tunisia, Egypt, uh, so many Bahrain, uh, it was full-on combat. Mm -hmm. And so it was rebels who were not really trained fighting against Gaddafi's troops. Mm -hmm. And so one day we were covering that front line in Ajdabia, this town along the, the coast. And Gaddafi's troops set up a checkpoint. As we were going to flee east, we ran directly into this checkpoint. And we knew that was one of the great risks of covering uh, the uprising because Gaddafi had been very clear, if you see Western journalists, you should kill them. They're Mm -hmm. spies uh, and terrorists. And so we ran into this checkpoint and we were, at first they were about to execute us. They made us lie face down on the ground and put guns to our heads. Each one of us, there were four of us, uh, Anthony Shadid, Steve Farrell, and Tyler Hicks. And we had guns to our heads, and they were deciding whether to execute us in that moment, and eventually they decided not to, and they tied us up and placed us in vehicles on the front line and sort of watched us as we were, you know, as bombs and and sniper rounds and landed all around us and Mm -hmm. were shot past us. And and eventually um, they moved us. They threw us in the back of this, I think, unarmored tank. We were blindfolded. And for me, as the only woman, I was groped repeatedly, sexually assaulted. Um, And I wrote very openly about this Mm -hmm. because I think it's very important to acknowledge, for me as a journalist, it's very important to be open and to leave little to speculation mm-hmm. because I, you know, I would rather just tell the story myself yeah. than have people guess what happened to me. Um, and that, the the real sort of violent part of the kidnapping went on for about three, four days. And then we were transferred to Tripoli and 
put under sort of house arrest in this mm-hmm. VIP prison. It was like an apartment with bars on the windows. And and then we were there for another three days. So we were taken on the 15th of March and released on the 21st of March. But of course it was terrifying. I mean, we were repeatedly threatened with death and mm-hmm. they told us, you know, tonight I'm going to kill you or I'm going to cut your pretty head off, as they said to Tyler. And, you know, I mean, it was just over and over. And, and you, you sort of handed over between various different groups of people, aren't you? So, yeah. I mean, at the time, I guess that's very difficult for you to sort of comprehend what's going on, especially as you're, you're blindfolded and, and under duress. But who are those people? You know, who are those sort of groups of people? Well, I think it changed. Initially, we were taken by just low-level fighters mm-hmm. on the front line. And I think that those guys, to me, are the most dangerous because they yeah. answer to no one. They can basically say, oh, they were shot in the crossfire. Yeah, and yeah, it, yeah. You know, but as you sort of get uh, transferred up the chain, then my feeling, and all of us agreed at that point, because we had a, at one point we were thrown into prison in CERT, uh, which was Qaddafi's stronghold. And, and we sort of had this conversation, well, we need to get transferred to Tripoli in order to survive. But if we go to Tripoli, we'll probably be tortured because they'll probably give us to the Ministry of Interior. And so we had this whole discussion, yeah. very matter of fact, you know. So we hoped to be transferred to Tripoli and be accounted for. But mm-hmm. we did assume that it would only get worse. Um, that didn't happen because there was a sort of fight over who would get us on the tarmac mm-hmm. uh, in Tripoli. Uh, between uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the Ministry of Interior, and eventually Foreign Affairs got us. And that was later translated to us by uh, Anthony Shadid, who spoke Arabic. And what would what is the distinction between those two ministries? Then? We just assumed if we ended up with the Ministry of Interior, we would be tortured yeah. because they are uh, they were notorious for torture. <laughs> and so, uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, we felt, had, was still Gaddafi was still in power. They mm. still wanted to prove to the international community that they were legitimate, and and so we felt we had a better chance or an easier chance of surviving if we did not go with the Ministry of Interior. And so, bearing that in mind, you're now with the you know, the foreign ministry who still wants to put up some sort of pretense to the outside world. And obviously, you know, the outside world, the New York Times knows what's going on. Sort of in hindsight, what was going on while you guys were all... Well, very quickly when they brought us to Tripoli, um, the first guys who took us off the tarmac, they put us in like an SUV and they blindfolded us and said, you know, you will no longer be beaten. You will, we, you will not be abused anymore you're now with the government of Libya and we were all at that point we were really broken I mean Mm -hmm. we had been through a really rough time for those days and and we're sort of beaten down and and so none of us really believed them and I remember the guy spoke perfect English and he was taking us we didn't know where because we were blindfolded but he was taking us to some place with these white carpets and Mm -hmm. again it was almost like a prison cell but a a posh one you know Mm -hmm. and and so he was taking us and he went to grab my hand to walk me inside because I couldn't see and I sort of smacked his hand and said you know don't touch me you're all disgusting and and he he it was interesting because his red line Mm -hmm. was he said were you raped and I said no I was not I was groped and beaten but I wasn't raped and he said oh okay like okay it's fine so long as you weren't raped and that was fascinating to me because that showed some degree of education you Mm -hmm. know that he knew that 
that might cause some sort of international uproar. And yeah. he didn't mind that I'd been beaten or groped <laughs> by every, you know, by tons of guys across Libya. But for him, it was really the, the red line he was looking for was rape. And then they, you know, then they transferred us to a sort of this apartment. And they said, look, if you open the window, we'll shoot you. And they kept us there and, and they bought us 25 bags of groceries that basically made us think we were never going to get released and, and clothes and, and, um, and toiletries. But they bought you groceries and, yeah. and clothes again. There's this weird sort of disjuncture. And again, I was going to say at that point, the guy who you just described is the first person who is suddenly... Although the situation is still terrible, but he's nice. He's sort of like yeah. the first civilised person who says almost, sorry about this situation we're in, you know, we've kidnapped you, but we're going to look after you okay now. You're not going to be beaten anymore. And they buy you bags and bags of groceries. Sure, sure but of course you don't, you know, we were still captive. So you never know what to believe yeah. because there was a lot of back and forth over that week in mm. the sense that there was a man one night who was caressing my hair and face telling me he would kill me you know Mm. that night and so there was a lot of sort of them one night when I was being groped in the back of a truck another guy grabbed me away from the guy who Mm -hmm. was touching me and I think you know so there was a lot of sort of these moments of people Mm. trying to protect us and then these horrible people sort of stepping in so even though we were sort of promised we would be fine and that we were in the hands of the Libyan government Mm -hmm. we actually didn't we were totally beaten down we had no idea whether to believe them one of your colleagues, I mean, I don't, you don't actually say whether it did happen in the book, but one of your colleagues is talking about, that's it, I'm never going to, you know, I don't, I want out of this, I'm not doing this again. Did he, did he Yeah, up? he hasn't gone back to Yeah, him. Yeah. But I you mean, have. I have. Uh, I, I have been back to Afghanistan and Iraq and, yeah, mostly Afghanistan and Iraq have been the two hostile places um, several times each. But I'm not, you know, I'm not doing combat per Mm -hmm. se, but I'm not sure that matters as much in this day and age. You know, with ISIS and with terrorism, you don't have to be on a front line for it to be dangerous. And that's sort of the scariest thing Mm -hmm. for any journalist today is that, you know, even the most seasoned journalists have a very hard time navigating the danger because you don't necessarily see the danger. That's sort of where I want to finish, really. I mean... One of the person that we haven't mentioned in that four group of people who were kidnapped um, was Mohammed, the driver, who was mm, killed exactly. as well. And all through this book, there's a long list of not just journalists and photographers, but fixers and mm. drivers mm. who you you are friends with, who were mm. killed along the way, mm. Tim Hetherington, Mary Colvin... Um, Anthony Shadid, who was one of the people that was kidnapped, is is later killed. I just want to finish off talking about how do you how do you make sense of this? You don't, and I think that that's the hardest part of this job is that you know I it's it, you know I talk about in the book when I got out of Libya, I oddly felt uh, lucky because I felt you know Muhammad was killed, mm-hmm. and why you know that that didn't make sense, and none of us saw. We assume he was killed because no one ever found his body, but yeah. no, we didn't see it. So we don't know if he was executed or killed in that crossfire because when we had initially been taken, there was a massive amount of crossfire. Mm-hmm. And, and so that immediately felt completely unfair uh, and it felt like our responsibility, mm-hmm. of course. And so, um, but we felt lucky that we had survived, of course, you know. But then a month later, Tim Hetherington and Chris Hondros were killed and those were two friends of mine. Mm-hmm. And that's what really sent me into a tailspin because I thought, 
why I don't get it. I don't understand. You know, I've been kidnapped twice. I've had I've had guns to my head, you know, numerous times. Uh why do I survive and they don't? Mm-hmm. You know, it just didn't seem fair and I think and Tim had been on that um, in the Corongal. Yeah, as well, Tim and I track. were together, yeah. that's yeah. where we got to yeah. know each other in the Corongal. Mm-hmm. And I think I think if you, you sit there and you try and calculate the odds or if you try and figure out, you know, you never know when it when your time is gonna come. Mm-hmm. I mean if you think about Michael Ducille, he was a Washington Post photographer, he had a heart attack in, mm. in covering Ebola, you know, and it's like, what are the odds of that? Mm. Anthony Shadid, you know, asthma attack, and he dies in Syria because he's allergic to the horses, you mm. know, so you can't, what Anthony had covered in his short time on earth mm. and what, you know, what he had survived, and then he dies of something completely that he, that he didn't have to die from. So mm. I think... If you try to make sense of it, you'll go crazy. Yeah. You know, I think what you can do is just appreciate every single second you have. And, and if you go into a story, you, you understand what the likelihood is or what the odds are that you might get killed. Perfect point for us to finish. So I've been talking to Lindsay Adario. We've been talking about her book, It's What I Do, A Photographer's Life of Love and War. Lindsay, it's been absolutely wonderful talking to you. Thank you for telling me about it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.